Welcome to That's Lit, the Lightbox podcast. We're a venture capital firm based in Mumbai, investing in consumer businesses in India. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things consumption, culture, and technology. Our idea is simple. We love to learn. Come learn with us. Together, we'll dig into new ideas, new ways of thinking, and new approaches to solving problems from industry experts across various fields. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to That's Lit. It's uh, good to have everyone here, and Pramesh, it's good to have you here. Our, our guest today is Pramesh, who I quite honestly can't uh, figure out one specific way to describe him. It can't be a, by a job or a role. I would say he's generally been a, an evangelist of, of inclusion in the world. I think uh, from our first conversations, which now go back about 15 years, I think we talked about just the importance of how we need to be mindful of society as we start to build businesses. And it never was focused at the start, I don't think, in any specific area. We talked about art, we talked about culture. And I think over time, you've, you've in- integrated a lot more of the thinking around LGBTQ as well into what specifically that's going to involve, which uh, has been extremely eye-opening, I think very interesting, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I'd say that... Uh, to give, a, I guess, a more formal, structural introduction of it, Pramesh has been leading the Godrej Culture Lab uh, for the last 10 years and has really managed to bring to the forefront topics that perhaps were seen in the shadows for a long time and has demonstrated what a positive Im- impact it can have by actually bringing those forward. So um, we'll, we'll get into more of that as we go. But Pramesh, is there a more uh, formal title you go by that you, you feel more adequately describes what you do? Well, your Royal Highness is a good place to start if you want to follow this title. Um, you know, it's 2021. What about hyperbole, right? Trump's gone, but exaggeration is still in. where we talk about the things that make you go hmm. um, No, I'm, as you described, right? I mean, I like to think that I wear three different hats, um, fabulous, stylish ones that's, you know, as that. Um, I think of myself foremost as a writer and as a scholar so whether it's you know gay bombay the first book which is when i first met you the book had just come out <clears throat> or queristan uh, which has just now come out recently a couple of months ago in the middle of the pandemic and all the different um, you know spaces that i've learned at so if i to just you know <clears throat> think of my most prominent hat it would be academia uh, i've been blessed um, to not just study but also like you know be a scholar at places like MIT or Yale um, or with programs like the TED Senior Fellows or the World Economic Forum. And each of these has been such great opportunities to um, to learn and to understand the connections between, you know, the different aspects of the world as we live in. Um, the second is business. And this is where we first met. Um, I remember meeting you when uh, we had co-invested 
uh, when I was at Mahindra for some years in, in Clear Trip. And, uh, you know, I was doing a different role at that time at Mahindra, focusing on innovation. And yet you were, and, you were still very, very, at that time, the purveyor of fashion and style into a very uh, conservative environment. I remember having uh, a meeting with Arun Nanda and him pointing out that he was always curious to see what color socks you would show up with. And uh, yeah, he would send me notes. He would send me notes in the middle of investment meetings saying, they are very boring today. I'm not impressed. I don't think I want to say yes to this funding opportunity. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but that was then. And since then, it's been Godridge, you know, through the Culture Lab, um, now through diversity and inclusion, you know, through the portfolio and in other ways, working with leaders and really helping business <clears throat> reimagine itself as a force for good and for change. And the third is in culture and creative industries. Um, so, you know, I spent some time editing Verve, but even before that, had a long run in print journalism uh, with L, uh, with the Times of India Group, etc. And yeah, I love fashion. And so a lot of what I do is also at these intersections, right? So whether it's with the different fashion weeks um, or with things like the India Art Fair or Serendipity, the art festival or... Um, you know, so many of, where there's a Kochi Biennale, I mean, so many of these art, fashion, design kind of, you know, linkages that uh, drive me personally um, and also in some strange ways uh, seem to find home in the kind of business work I do. So very broadly, I would think I'm a, I'm a dot connector. <laughs> that's a very, that's a very good uh, title. Dot connector. I think that's yeah. uh that, that, that's how people uh, should, should refer to you as, which I, which I think is fair. I mean, look, because I think you have spent, as I've seen, a fair amount of time delving into areas where, like I said, people haven't necessarily been thinking or going, which then brings out a lot of thoughts from people who you didn't necessarily realize were actually interested. Me, for example. I think there's a lot of stuff that you talk about and that we've talked about over the years that uh, I think as we've discussed it have made a lot of sense. And I, and I want to come to that in a minute, but maybe let's just go back and just talk about 15 years ago, you wrote the first book, you know, you had a certain perspective, you had a certain, I guess, uh, th there were certain thoughts and taboos that existed in the country. Now, last year, the next book comes out. Over time, you've had a chance to work at a large company, you've had a chance to make this uh, thought of, and, and we'll come to other parts of culture in a second, but this whole idea of LGBTQ, You've had a chance to, to kind of push, I would argue, the envelope within a large company in some way to consider and talk about it. Do you see a change? Has, has the world evolved? Is it, is it moving? Is it moving fast enough? What, what's your perspective on that? Um, I, yeah, I see a fundamental change for sure, but I don't think the world is moving fast enough at all um, on any dimension. Um, whether it's climate change, whether it's social justice, and we just have to look at the news, right? Um, all over the world, as well as in our own country. I mean, you know, whether it is, um, and I see the connections between all of these, right? I see that there is an increasing importance, especially amongst young people, um, that, you know, we have to pay more attention to the climate. We have to pay more attention to social inequality. If you look at the rise of all the important movements in the past couple of years, which have actually been there for decades, but which have now come to prominence once again because of the urgency, right? Whether it's Greta Thurberg and the climate change, um, you know, the push really towards climate change, 
uh, and recognizing that if we don't act together as a planet, you know, there's really no going back. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's, you know, Me Too and the movement for gender equality. Um, and these are just some which have been like, you know, prominent, say, in the U.S. and other parts of the Western world. In India as well, we continue to, uh, there are multiple struggles which are ongoing on the ground, um, whether around caste, whether around other kinds of inequality that continue to exist in our country as well. So a lot of this, I think, has, I, I mean, I see more and more governments, um, you know, companies, corporations, um, other institutional players recognizing that these are important forces, but in terms of the actual structural changes to make things better, I think that is a lot, you know, we are working a lot slower um, in those. But certainly what has happened over the past decade is that, um, say, business, right, which is where we both are located then, uh, has understood that um, this is not something that you can any longer pay lip, just afford to pay lip service to. For example, post-COVID, um, you know, diversity and inclusion like is not something that is a cherry on the cake. It can really become the whole cake because if you look at even from a needs basis, if you look at the job numbers in terms of who's been excluded, so you know the latest CMI data says that you know women's employment fell from twenty percent some years ago to about seven percent post-COVID. Right? That means this, if we are in a country where women are like you know losing jobs faster than men and not recovering them as fast as men. Um, so in this case, right, focusing on some of these issues of equality and equity is more important. So focusing on gender at this point would be even more pertinent. And I think it would be more useful in, because all the data says that when you focus on things that matter, everyone benefits. So actually, let, let's uh, talk about that. I know a while ago you and I spoke about the, the fact that you had quantitatively measured the impact of uh, the focus on this effort for, for Godrej. And in terms of press mentions, in terms of increased brand awareness. Um, so do, do you have some high-level stats or thoughts that, that just what effect it actually can have? Because while it's great, and while I appreciate that everybody should and do their bit, and everybody should yeah. kind of think about it's the right thing to do, I think people will actually start moving on it when they say that, unfortunately, it's also self-serving to do. Yeah. And, um and so, but it is absolutely, it absolutely does benefit, right? And, and you want to talk maybe about well, it, it's, Yeah, across multiple dimensions. So I can just tell you about LGBTQ inclusion, which is what I work on. But the same would be true of any other dimension, whether it's people with disabilities, whether it's regional, whether it's caste, whether it's whichever dimension of inclusion, you know, race, whichever dimension of inclusion you want to look at, right? Um, so there is enough... I mean, in terms of just, you know, pure numbers, I mean, countries have realized this, but there's enough now data that says that, you know, uh, you know, $200 billion is the Indian LGBTQ economy. The global LGBTQ economy is worth about $5 trillion. Um, this is not me. This is companies like PwC and others who are, who are saying this. Um, the World Bank did a report um, in 2012, which specifically measured the cost of homophobia in India. And um, that was $32 billion in 2012. The economist who conducted that, Lee Badgett, is a friend of mine. She's a teacher at um, UMass Amherst. And she's gone on record to say that was a conservative number. Now, in 2012... What what does that mean in terms of the cost of homophobia? The cost of homophobia? So, again, the report is available online. But it means that if we had um, better policies, processes, systems... Um, and we were not homophobic, then we would have got an economic bump 
of this. So we lost $32 billion in, 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 um, in revenue because we were homophobic. Again, it's, um, she's an economist. She uses various measures. Um, so, you know, the report is out there. I urge everyone to go see it. But the point is in 2012, $32 billion was about 1% of our country's GDP. So, again, you know, people, are, people have started measuring it. They've started realizing that, you know, exclusion has a cost and inclusion has benefits. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people have realized this at the country level. So there are multiple countries now in the world which specifically go out and attract talent. Uh, people have realized this at the state level. And, you know, in America, for example, there are states where when homophobic bills come up, um, you know, corporations petition these states, for example, transgender washrooms or things like that. There are enough cases of corporations petitioning these states and removing these bills because they know that, you know, they say we will not set our company, let our companies operate in states which are, you know, homophobic. Mm-hmm. And so we have enough example of, you know, states changing their policies um, because they don't want, you know, they want to keep attracting business, employment and so on. So there's enough data in terms of saying, and of course, in terms of, you know, money that can be made, uh, I cite a book about, uh, you know, Todd Sears, who used to work at Merrill Lynch. Uh, I cite this in the book when they just started in the early 2000s, uh, you know, saying that can we make a couple of million dollars uh, off the LGBTQ market in terms of, you know, identifying them as, a put, as potential buyers of our financial services and products. And his team raised $1.4 billion in, in, in two years wow. instead of the couple of million dollars that they had thought they would go out and raise from queer people. And wow. so, of course, then there's enough financial services companies that offer products to specifically tailor for LGBTQ individuals, right? Um, so there's enough money to be made. Um, there's enough data that says Deloitte, for example, says that if you have inclusive workplaces, you are eight times more likely to have better outcomes and six times more likely to be more innovative. Um, and so have you seen so, this, these benefits as you guys have uh, implemented more awareness? Have you guys seen, seen things work? In your, in not your just us. Uh, companies all across India and across the world are seeing these benefits, right? I mean, whether it's from a brand perspective. Specifically, since you, you've kind of stepped into a large corporation with this purview. Yeah, I, I can give you, yeah I can give you one uh, you know, very specific example. And um, you, know, you are on the Godrich board. So... I mean, this will this will warm the cockles of your heart to hear. Um, but one of our biggest investors in Goldridge Consumer Products, um, you know, has gone on record. Arisek, they've gone on record to tell us that one of the reasons why they continue investing in us institutionally is because they really, really value um, our diversity and inclusion impetus, especially that we focus on LGBTQ inclusion as other forms of the, of inclusion as well. Um, and this is because the, the the investor, the person making these decisions happens to be lesbian. And when she visited Godridge, she was just so enthused by Nisa's strong commitment to LGBTQ inclusion. She went back and told her wife that, you know, this is amazing. I'm glad that this is happening out of India. And they remain committed to being invested in us for the long term, right? Just, I mean, it's just one example. No, which is um, huge. And, and listen, actually... I, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that it's it, it makes a difference in uh, with the people who care and and with the people who understand it. And I think you know we have I was talking to you earlier and I mentioned that we decided in our fund that environmental issues and social issues are really important in how we look at building companies. And yeah, it's not an ESG requirement by an LP that we were given. It's been more a, a feeling that we have because we have kids that are going to grow up here and they're going to have the the to deal with the world after we're gone. 
And it's a question of what kind of world do you want to leave and what kind of impact can you have? And I think that you made this decision a long time ago that I guess with your academia perspective, you took a call and I remember us having this conversation saying, look, I'm only going to get so far in that world. I, I need to be in an environment where I can actually influence and, and, and drive a change. And I think that finding that opportunity to get in there and do it. And, and, and that, that was, I think the, I mean, it was, it was, it was unheard of at the time when you went in. I don't think the role, I know it for a fact, the role didn't exist. Maybe yeah. we can talk a little bit about that. How did you create this role? How did you convince, I, I know a little bit of it. I know my version of it or my side of it, but I, I want to hear you say, how did you go in and say, guys, this is what we're going to do. And this is why it makes sense. Cause you didn't have any of the data that you have today. You had an idea, you had a belief, you had a view. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what was the story? Because this is the ultimate pitch, quite honestly. Well, you know, you played an important role in that as well. So I'm very grateful to you for introducing me to Nisa. Um, and I think often, and I talk about this in my book as well, right? I talk about two frameworks with which I view the change-making process. And one is cultural acupuncture, and which is knowing really and what points you have to press. Because, you know, when you have, when you are someone like me who has zero power, but, you know, a capacity to influence, knowing where you press to get your influence uh, running is the most important thing that you will do, right? Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, in this case, it was very clearly that the point to press at Godridge was Nisa. So <laughs> how do we put, you know, how do we, you know, influence Nisa to say that this is really important, right? And you really helped with that. And I'm so, I'm so grateful um, because how do we get someone, you know, who is in that moment of transformation themselves to understand that this kind of ambiguous thing that we're talking about saying, let's start a lab-like space to look at changes taking place in the world. And I remember the early conversations were very much about, um, you know, even with her, right? Um, who's been to IDEO, who knows about design thinking, who's, you know, travel seen the world, she's like, I don't get what this means. And we had some of, but with her, I think there was just that early kind of strange fit. You know, we were two, I think, misfits trying to make sense of the world we were living in. And I think you saw that because when I came to you with the idea after dropping out of UPenn with the PhD, you, you very clearly told me, you said, you know, I think this is crazy and I can only think of one other crazy person in the world who might get this, which is her. So go talk to her. And, uh, you know, you set us up on this, you know, get to know each other date. And we hung out and we realized that, you know, we can talk to each other. And, you know, um, so at some point she was like, I still don't know what you want to do, but I think I kind of like you. And I think I want you to be here because we are in this moment of transformation. And I think, some of what you say can stick and help us. So do this culture lab thing or whatever. But of course, the questions that were asked were very much, is this going to make us money? We were like, no, it's going to spend some money. Is this going to help us sell more soap? It was like, no. <laughs> um, and we were like, okay, so <laughs> why are we doing this, right? So then how do you make that translation between when we are looking at the changes in the world outside, we're able to capture trends that we can perhaps in, you know, uh, learn from when we invite others in we invite ourselves you know we expose ourselves to the world there's this dialogue there's a recognize there's a recognition there's an understanding um so i think i mean you know that journey took time and um 
But initially, I think that there are still many people at Godrej who still don't know what the Culture Lab does. Uh, and that's fine because, you know, there's millions of people in the world who know and who benefited from it. Uh, I think that you you talked about something in a very open, vulnerable way and were able to establish that connection. And I think that once you did that, you then brought that openness to everything. I remember participating in a, a conversation there on subcultures and you brought a group yeah. of people together who were very interesting. And you pushed a, a thought process around this idea of how things grow and how they happen. So it's uh, you, you've. You've ended up creating a platform, I think, that allows for discussion that wouldn't have otherwise happened in the same way. And uh, I think that the the fact that you were able to to get a large company to buy into that, the fact that you were able to do that, I mean, it's a testament to to the importance of the conversation and the importance of the thought and the fact that it's sustained for 10 years. I mean, I think that the the whole thing would have been fine for you and Nisa to have had a, a moment in time and felt good about something and thought, let's try something. But you built on it, you sustained it, you ran it for 10 years, it's grown. Maybe talk about how that changed. I mean, you went in, perhaps with a, a semblance of an idea and a thought of what could happen. But if you sat back now and looked back, did you expect to accomplish what you did? Did you expect to be in a different place? Did you, and I'm not saying good or bad, I'm just saying, is it different from where you, you may have thought? And what, what do you think you've learned along that journey? In that sense, it's very much like one of your investee companies. You know, you start in a direction, um, you get your first round or whatever based on, you know, the plans you show. But then 10 years later, it's like, okay, what did we fund exactly? Uh, <laughs> who is this? No, no, listen, um, all our companies operate to the perfect plan that they told us at the beginning. Huh? I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you must be the only venture capitalist in the world then. <laughs> Um, no, I think we've iterated along the way and that's been, you know, that's that's what's been exciting. We went in with the premise that maybe there's a need for an open kind of for a platform which is, you know, format agnostic, but which brings together people from different parts of, you know, the world and different walks of life, all of who are interested in investigating what it means to be modern in India. And, um, you know, that's grown over the years into... You know, an event space, um, an art space, um, a, a, a think tank kind of space that produces resources and white papers, a learning kind of space that um, produces, you know, fellowships for students in the humanities, you know, a particular kind of students who are very underserved um, because, you know, humanities students internships <laughs> and uh, programs. Um, so it's grown over the years. It's grown into a collaboration space. The Culture Lab earlier used to be things that we did only on our campus. But over the past few years, we've kind of popped up in different cities. Um, and what, you know, what hasn't worked over the years? What, what did you do that you're like, whoa, we were just off base on this? What hasn't worked is when we've, um, you know, uh, is when we've tried to listen to people say, here's what the public needs. <laughs> it's never worked. And which is why I'm not a big, you know, so I, we stopped doing this kind of surveys of what people want post events and whatever, because, um, you know, I think in that sense, uh, uh, you know, curation and connection, which is what, you know, we do, I think has to come from this, you know, this space of understanding the world, but also can't come through like asking people what they want and what they need. It has to come from like, some kind of subliminal understanding of what is lying below the surface. 
in that sense, I think it's not that different from being a good venture capitalist, right? And if you're not imagining what people want today, you're imagining what will they want tomorrow and taking bets on it today. So, so let's talk about that for a second. If you look at COVID the last year, things yeah. have uh, shifted. I think uh, yeah. we talked a little bit about how in our own lives, things have evolved and changed and yeah. we can talk yeah. about that. But I mean, do you see a... Do you see, do you sense, do you, have you guys done any work to figure out what has fundamentally changed in, in what people want now? Yeah, I think fundamentally uh, a lot of brahm that people had, a lot of illusions that people had uh, about, you know, uh, systems, uh, spaces, uh, relationships, whether it is between individuals or whether it is packs between individuals and organizations, like a workplace and an employee. I think COVID has laid bare a lot of, uh, you know, truths that many of these were imaginary or, or illusionary. Um, and, you know, so I think organizations and individuals who, who have uh, remained authentic, uh, remained value-based, remained committed to like, you know, something deeper and longer term, um, are certainly going to benefit them, you know, more than others who, you know, have used this moment to like lay bare, you know, and lay quite naked the transactional nature of their, you know, um, either of who they are as individuals or who they are as organizations. So COVID, I think, has realigned everyone into like a, a deeper quest for authenticity, mm. whether it is within one's own self, whether it is in one's personal relationships or professional relationships. When I see it happening, you know, in my own life, with my friends, in, you know, the company I work with and in other companies as well. People's capacity for like, accepting bullshit or manufacturing it or yeah. uh, pretending that it exists um, is going down. <laughs> uh, Absolutely right. I mean, it's funny. We, um, <clears throat> we did a whole analysis at one point on or our own thought process on what's going to be different. And in the typical, I guess, venture jargon way, we said transparency and hygiene. And, um, but, but the transparency part that you're talking about, I think it's very interesting you point out that this is kind of essential in every aspect of life now. You're, you're, it's not just about, it's not just, I just want my companies to tell me, you're, you make a great point. I want my relationships with my friends to be more transparent. I want my relationships with my partners to be more transparent. I want whatever it may be, because you're absolutely right, because you know, it, it, I guess it, it evolved a view now that says, you know, all this stuff is is going to change on a dime tomorrow again. And whether it's this pandemic or something else, you want to you want to be invested in relationships that matter. And I guess people go through these evolutions in life where it's uh, if somebody has a major illness or a death for that moment in time, you say, oh, life is so precious. We must live every day like it's the next, like, like it's the last. Yeah. And then you go back to forgetting about that. And I don't know how long this stuff lasts. And I, I, I wonder a lot about the idea of are these changes towards, I, I'm recording this right now from my house. Um, I know you're in the office, but I'm, I'm in, a, in, a, in a view that says that, you know, it's okay. It's, I, I can be more productive. I can do this. I can do that. I'm not traveling. But tomorrow when suddenly the, the world is very free and open to go around, am I going to maintain this new perspective on life? Am I going to regress to the mean? What are we really going to take out of it? Is transparency of relationships with your brands going to matter the same way? Our Indian, yeah. Indian consumers, Indian consumers who are very specifically, let's say in the nicest way possible, value conscious. 
yeah. and not necessarily quality driven per se all the time. Are they going to migrate towards brands that are inclusive if it's a premium to be inclusive? Are they going to migrate towards brands that are environmentally aware if it's a premium to do that? I'm hopeful that the role of technology will make it such that you can be environmentally conscious, inclusive, and still deliver a better product at a better price. And that, that is the, the sort of responsibility, I think, that we have as investors to make that happen. And you have within Godridge as a large company to, to deliver products with that mind frame. But I, I'm not sure if, uh, if, if the consumer is ready to, to really make decisions driven by that. Are you finding that that's happening? Are you thinking that that's a permanent shift? I'm finding that that's happening with employees and consumers because uh, certainly I work, I mean, employees are also consumers, right? Because in a sense, you have to attract employees to your group. And I'm seeing more and more amongst because I go, I recruit, I talk to large groups of people. I'm seeing young India being very, as you said, value conscious and values conscious both. Mm. Uh, I am seeing very clearly the questions being asked about sustainability about the environment about treating everyone fairly and equally and what's incredible is that it's say you know in my case since um I'm, i work primarily around lgbtq inclusion what's amazing now is that it's not just the queer students asking it's the straight students asking as well really? just and that's amazing they're asking what your policy is about it because they want to be in a company that has a yeah, like, i'm straight but i want to work for a company that treats my queer friends well hmm. so it's like and this was different 10 years ago because I remember when I joined Godridge, I was like, when I joined Mahindra first, I was like, I'm gay, I want to be treated well. When I joined Godridge, I was like, I'm gay, I tell me about the policies so that everyone who's queer is treated well, right? It took me also some years to go into that link between... Were there, were there policies then when you joined either of those companies? Or no, not at, not, no. So when I joined, we actually began creating the LGBTQ inclusive policies and it's taken 10 years to, in a sense, where we are now. But... Again, policies are just the first step, right? So, again, to answer your question, am I seeing a shift? Yes, I am seeing a fundamental shift in young people caring about things uh, which are not superficial, um, caring about, essentially caring about authenticity, you know, and they're very okay with, you know, I mean, if you're bigoted, say you're bigoted. Just, you know, don't lie because we can find out very easily, <laughs> you know. So with LGBTQ, for example, I mean, I'm okay if a company, I'm not okay, but you know, if you don't have, if you don't have same-sex partner benefits, if you're not hiring queer people, if you do not have, you're not paying for insurance or for gender affirmation, you know, if you're not, whatever, if you're not doing everything that will make you a good company overall, and then in the end, when Pride Month comes, you put one rainbow filter around your brand and like, you know. And this has happened to so many, like Zomato and all these others have been called out. Thankfully, Zomato and all course corrected very quickly, you know. But I'm saying in today's world, you know, your yeah. employees. Do you have a, Sorry. an ability to open source what companies should do? Like you guys have thought this through so much. Sitting there saying, yeah, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I want to I I do the right thing. Um, I, I don't know what the right thing is. I wrote the no? book for that. So the book- I wrote the book for that. And it's only six ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the book will walk me through the policies on what I need to do to be able to actually. The book will walk you through the business case for inclusion. It will take you step by step through every policy that you need to do, every program, every cultural shift you need to make, every bit of advocacy you need to do. It'll also tell you stories about 
incredible successes, both individual and organizational in the business world who've gone on this journey mm-hmm. in India and outside and succeeded. Um, and as a bonus, it'll take you to like Switzerland for some song and dance sequences like a Yash Chopra movie. I love so it. Anyway, that's a really good deal. <laughs> for six ninety nine, man, that's amazing. I think that uh, it's cheaper if you get it on Kindle, and you can get it audible in my own voice. So okay. I think it's it through the pandemic in this very building in a makeshift studio. <laughs> wow, fantastic! Look at that. What a bonus. Okay, so this is so, uh, yeah, it's all there. So while uh, while we talk about, and I'll come back to LGBTQ in a second, but I, I want to talk just about general generally the consumer because a large part of what you've done also has been about culture sitting in godridge you touch consumers across the board and think about consumption in different ways um do you have a view on if i guess the the nature of consumption or the the brands that matter to consumers are shifting because of the content that people are getting exposed to so today i would argue that you know, the quality of products at a tech level has to be upgraded because of the fact that we have global companies here, because of the fact that consumers are exposed on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram to, to let's say, marketing in different ways. Um, and, and even to different types of, of, I guess, characters that are being marketed to them. And, and I'll come to sort of that idea of superheroes and everything else in a second. But, but just this idea of, has the has the, has the quality level changed? Has the perspective on how to reach consumers changed? And again, not from an LGBTQ perspective. I'm saying just general communication. Do you see a, a shift because of exposure looking different? Oh, completely. I think everything has changed because there is now uh, so much hybridity. People are consuming content which is deeply regional and incredibly global and forming their worldviews based on a combination of all of that. Um, you know, I think over the top, you know, OTT platforms um, and, you know, YouTube, etc. have exposed people to, again, multiple ways of being and thinking. Um, so say, for example, around, you know, even five years ago, it was very, very hard to find, you know, women as central protagonists in, you know, TV shows or movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of Netflix, Hotstar, um, Amazon, you know, and so on. There are multiple shows now, including in India, where there are such strong, you know, female characters, as well as accompanied by female directors and crews. Um, so Netflix did a report recently globally, which was amazing, right? Saying that Netflix has globally um, moved to about more than 40% of its content globally has, you know, has central characters, which are female. And likewise for crews and directors, um, and they want to push further for in terms of other representations like mm-hmm. Hispanic, like LGBTQ, etc., which are less than what is there in the population at that time, right? So you see a strong impetus in the content being created. You're seeing a strong impetus in content creators wanting to do that. And is that shifting consumption? Is that shifting habits? Uh, I mean, certainly. Uh, just, you know, for example, around Women's Day. I mean, it's just interesting to see how conversations around Women's Day Whereas some years ago, including, you know, in homes with brands, you know, every brand had one cringe kind of conversation around Women's Day. Celebrate the superhuman woman who can do it all. She can raise a family. She can do this. As if the woman has nothing else to do except multitask, whether she wants to or not. Right? And you're putting so so much pressure on this woman. If a woman doesn't want to multitask, 
she's feeling, you know, insecure, even though she might be Indra Nui, getting paid way more than any other man in the world. But yeah. she's still feeling this pressure because, you know, the world is putting this. But if you see the conversations now coming up around Women's Day, it is about, you know, challenging one's bias. It is about saying, we all need to challenge our biases. We all need to relook at how we are looking at this or whatever. So does all of this have an impact on consum- on consumer thinking, consumer behavior and consumer choices? Certainly. The good thing is this is not just happening in English or Hindi. This is happening all across uh, multiple parts of India. And it's happening even in parts where uh, one conventionally doesn't look, which is why the culture lab is such a useful place, right? Um, for example, the most exciting uh, news network to me right now is Khabar Lahiriya, which is run by a bunch of incredible women, uh, rural Dalit women out of Bundelkhand uh, in central India. It's an all-woman-led newsroom and team uh, giving you news out of central India from a women-centric perspective. Kick ass. Again, wow. right? And the kind of stories that Khabar Lahiriya brings out are stories that don't make it to the mainstream. But the fact is there are multiple Khabar layers all over our country uh, run, operated, producing content, sharing content um, with transgender uh, people, right? There's an incredible channel called Transvision, which Rachna, um, who's again spoken at the lab, Rachna Budropoya, brings out as well, showing you stories from a trans perspective. So we have, uh, you know, it's, it's great stuff happening out there, which is changing representation as well as consumption. To answer your question. Sure. Uh, I guess another interesting point is you're saying that it's not a metro-specific phenomenon right now. And I guess you're, you're seeing openness, inclusion, this conversation take place in the most rural of areas. Why? Why is it now shifted there? What, what, has, what has changed there where, let's say, generations have been structured in a certain way, looked at whether it's women or, or differently different different types of communities, LGBTQ, disabled, whatever, they've had their different perspective on what role they have to play in their societies. They're now changing their view. Is it just a, a sudden openness that came about? Is there a sudden shift of power that took place? What, what, what has moved it in those areas? So I'm not saying that's either or. I mean, the thing that, you know, that one can agree upon, if you can agree upon India, is that, you know, it's extremely complicated <laughs> And it's not to say ki, I mean, I anyway don't believe in urban-rural distinctions. I believe in circularity. Um, so I don't think as urban versus rural or urban and rural as like two separate planes. I think of them as like intersecting uh, spaces as well. Um, but even within that, so, so I think while there is, uh, while in urban spaces, there is extreme oppression and extreme ignorance in rural, in some rural places, there is extreme like, you know, progressiveness and vice versa. Uh, what is happening though is that I think a lot of the change uh, is being youth driven in smaller town India and rural India as well because youth have either whether access to technology um, or through travel or through migratory patterns of their families they've been able to like see something else and so um, you know one can aspire um, wherever one is located uh, one can imagine that there is something else which is possible and hence which can be created as well. And all of that is happening um, as well, right? So in, in the queer space, for example, um, some of the most exciting queer organizations are Ya All in Manipur or uh, Grace Banu who runs Trans Rights now in Tutikora in Tamil Nadu. And you know what Grace has done, and I think, again, 
um, which is, I think, something that venture capitalists should be looking at, is, you know, new kinds of partnerships. So Grace, um, who is the first ever transgender engineer to get a certificate um, from Tamil Nadu, um, set up this project in collaboration with the Tamil Nadu state government. So it's Tamil Nadu state government, Grace Hanner NGO, and well-meaning corporates like Godrej Agrovet, who, have, who are supporting in kind and so on. They've set up um, the country's first transgender-run dairy farm. So it's a full dairy setup with cows, with milk production, with products, run and operated by trans people, with the collaboration of the state and private uh, players as well, right? So all this is happening. This is not happening in Bombay and Delhi. It's happening in Chutikora. But it's such a powerful model that it can be scaled and exported anywhere in the world, right? To me, it's like the, like this can go up like Amul. Yeah. Uh, so all the exciting experiments are happening in places like this. It's happening under our noses. We have to look. <laughs> so actually, let me ask you that. In general, I've had the view that for given the complexity of India and the challenges, and I'm not one to, to, to comment on which political party is right or wrong, or I have no political let's say, uh, cred in any way to be able to talk about what the right thing is. But I would say that my general approach is government's issues are complicated enough that I'm not relying upon them to figure out answers. And so therefore, it's going to come out of businesses. But what you just gave an example of there was a great partnership among all of the people coming together. Based on your experience and looking at it, let's just take for the, the, the issues or the challenges or the opportunities among the queer community. Do you think the best answer is actually to, to co-op the government and work with them and develop the solutions together? Or do you think that market forces can drive the change required and uh, policy will catch up to it over time? I'm an, I'm a, I'm an uh, opportunist. So <laughs> uh, I, I would just grab whatever is available at that moment and go ahead with it. And I write about it in my book as well, right? Cultural acupuncture was one framework. We spoke about others. The other is Jugar resistance, which is locate yourself anywhere, uh, do Jugar and resist in the system and create other ways of imagining and being. So mm-hmm. I'm, um, you know, uh, but to answer your question about, you know, state versus non-state, I think in India, a lot of good work happens when you collaborate with state government. Yeah. Because I think that is where you can find, you know, I mean, you know, uh, because various states have various governments and some are m- more ahead of the others in terms of progressive mindsets and values and like, you know, valuing, say, uh, you know, collaborations of, of different kinds. So a lot of the good work in India is happening across. And again, these are these are governments which are, um, you know, across the political spectrum in their orientation. But, you know, you know, to me, it's, are they, you know, are the governments willing to collaborate in a win-win, you know, partnership or are they not? So it's not which political party is it? Are they open to collaboration or not? And in that sense, I think um, younger people are finding that state governments are easier to collaborate with because the immediate effect is then for the people in that state, right? So like, uh, and in that we are seeing amazing stuff. So we are seeing Chhattisgarh pride being supported by the chief minister. We are seeing the Kerala chief minister go out and, you know, support, you know, LGBTQ individual and transgender nurses, for example. In Maharashtra, we are seeing a lot of support as well in terms of either commissions being formed for transgender individuals or other kinds of, you know, initiatives, um, you know, including people, people and trans people joining political parties and things like that. So we are seeing across 
the country various hues and shapes we are seeing a mobilization and i think you know i think everyone um uh, as individuals and you know or as a larger queer community um you know i think one should work with people who want to you know that's the essence of modern democratic coalition politics right you work with those who want to advance your interests so i personally will work with anyone who wants to give my queer um citizens you know jobs livelihoods rights like access and you know a, a better tomorrow so let's uh i, I know we're running out of time here but i want to ask one question to kind of wrap things up a bit so 10 years ago you started with a certain idea 10 years in you've fructified that idea you've got some metrics you've got some structure you've got some process you've got some stuff if you were to look forward 10 years what would give you sort of the metric to say that yeah you know i'm, I'm i think we spent the first 10 years gaining knowledge and structure and approach and we've understood how to do it and we spent the next 10 years what would you want to have accomplished what do, would you like to have seen changed um and it could be metrics it could be sentiment it could be anything i'm not giving you the the measure of which to say it but what would make you feel satisfied that uh we had we'd move forward in a journey so i think for any success right so what would make me satisfied is that when i'm not an outlier you know i want to see more marginal people in positions of power across right i want to see queer i want to see dalit i want to see people with disabilities i want to see underrepresented minorities in general um occupy positions of power uh, across whether in the government whether in universities um whether in firms like ours or yours uh because i think historically you've seen that it's only when you can be when you have a seat at the table um that's when you have the access to actually bring about change and that's how when other people also recognize you and your needs as valid because otherwise you know um the majority or the mainstream is thinking is imagining what it wants of you you know if if your innovation department in any big company has 10 men they are imagining what women need as opposed to just hiring a couple of women in the team and saying let's just ask them <laughs> instead of designing for them right likewise so what would because i think some years ago we began a journey in talking about looking at looking below the surface looking at changes looking what all of this is about uh, 10 years later i think i would like my legacy to be that seat at the table because i'm like i'm kind of exhausted being um you know the token whatever voice um in these panels in these forums in these conversations whereas i see all around me incredibly uh, talented people who are much more brilliant than me but who you know i've been very blessed because of the certain kind of privileges i've had to be a, you know to be able to access some of the spaces i've had so i would like there to be much more representation on all tables um and i see that in that um there will be benefits for not just the people who are having the seats at the table but for everyone at large and it's a great that's a uh, a fantastic goal and i think that um <clears throat> you make a great point that it's uh it just makes sense it makes it makes sense for businesses and makes sense for everybody around the table to have that and but that's also what informed our thinking around this idea of environmental and social being issues that we care about they're not just because we're altruistic and want the world to to be a better place we actually think that the best way to build the right business is by ensuring that we're considering these issues right now and um I'm hopeful that these types of conversations that that you and I have had 
and I'm glad that you know that we're you're you're willing to come on to something like this with us and and talk about it and we're willing to try to get this conversation out there and I hope that this is the start of many more and um, I'm I'm definitely and I have been sold on your your way of thinking and your propositions and the the openness it brought to my uh, thought process from the very start and so um, I'm hopeful that I can do my bit to help expose more people to that and I think that you and I will continue to find opportunities to to bring this thought process out there and make that uh, that aspiration of yours come true over the next 10 years so thank you and next time in your office someone has promised me sushi from coco you know who you are so <laughs> over sushi sitting in your fabulous garden uh, face to face we will, but we, will until- we will make good sushi good coffee all of that happens all of that's on the point Listen, thank Barry, you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, and, and listen again, congrats on, on taking the idea and making it into a, a fantastic platform and, and for getting this conversation going. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see a lot more success with it in the coming months. Thank you. And to everybody else, thanks for tuning in. Um, join the conversation and access the notes on our website. And uh, look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks, guys.